our, our passage is Matthew chapter 7, the first six verses. Uh, let's pray, and we'll get into this text. Lord, we do thank you and praise you uh, for this day. Lord, we are um, just thankful for the gospel of Matthew, and specifically, Lord, the Sermon on the Mount, this, uh, this greatest sermon ever. Lord, there is so much here to ponder, to consider, uh, Lord, so much that we need. Um, so we ask that um, you would help us, Lord, through your Spirit to understand the text, uh, that we would understand what was recorded for us um, to study. We pray, Lord, that it would take root in our hearts and really affect change, that we uh, would grow closer to you, that we would understand who you are, that we would uh, submit ourselves to you and allow you um, to do the work uh, in our lives that you intend to do. Father, we're so quick to resist. We're so quick to push back against you in our flesh. And so, Father, we pray that you would minister to us today, Lord, that you would encourage us from your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now in Christ's good name. We pray. Amen. We're sort of at a turning point through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, predominantly up to this point, starting in chapter 5 through chapter 6, the, the Sermon on the Mount has been sort of, uh, <clears throat> Jesus has been pricking at sort of the, the, the underlying issues, the, the motives, how we deal with things internally. Uh, now there's sort of this shift to the outside. So, so, so now that all of the stuff he's talked about internally, trusting in Christ, submitting to the law, understanding God's standard, now in this section for the next 12 verses, we're only covering half of it, there's this shift to how does the follower of Christ relate to other people? Uh, the first six verses are dealing with the sort of don't do this in relationships. And then verses 7 through 12 sort of deal with the positive. Deal with your relationships in this way. I had thought about doing it all at once, uh, but I opted to kind of give time for the guesses and um, for us to sort of hang out afterwards. Ideally, I don't want to make any promises it'll be short because that doesn't necessarily, like I'd rather just be short and uh, we'll see. Um, I'm not backing myself into a corner uh, at this point. Um, I'm off track already. <laughs> Then we go into the positive. The sort of the filter for these 12 verses, I believe, is in verse 12. So if we could fast forward a little bit, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, we read this. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. And so this, um, the golden rule we know this as. And as I read the golden rule, there's sort of all of a sudden this sort of bells and whistles sort of go off. 
when I read the phrase there, for this is the law and prophets. Hmm, Jesus used this somewhere before. And if we go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, at the very beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, he'd given the Beatitudes, and then he began to explain the law. If he's the prophet, or the, if he is the Messiah, Matthew has to deal with, the Messiah has to deal with, how does Jesus handle the Old Testament law? And so he begins the Sermon on the Mount, and as he begins explaining the true teaching and the true heart behind uh, the Old Testament. In verse 17, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And then he begins to explain the standard of the law, how it had been misinterpreted and misapplied. And he gives the, the true teaching and really elevates the law, which brings all people sort of to their knees in humility before God. And then we come to this section as he deals with relationships. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, and he says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way that you want them to treat you. For in this is the law and the prophets. If we fast forward through Matthew, we'll come to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. There's a group of the religious people trying to sort of trap Jesus. And this, there's a group of Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees had given their best attempt at Jesus to try to sort of uh, trap him or silence him. But what happened is as Jesus responded to them, he silenced them. And the group of Pharisees sort of were like, ah, oh, this is a problem. Let's give it our best shot, boys. And I kind of get this impression that they, they had a little group huddle. Well, what, how can we trap Jesus? And so then they sent a lawyer of the law forward. And the lawyer then asked Jesus in verse 36, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in all of the, the scriptures? And this is where Jesus responded, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. And the reason I bring this up is when Jesus sort of reduces the message of the scriptures, when we see even in the Sermon on the Mount, so far what we've covered is the pointing people to God, helping people to get right with God. And now there's this shift to relationships. And he talks about the what, what is the message of the Old Testament, and Jesus says, basically, the law points to people loving God and then loving each other. And I don't know that I've wrapped my mind around this altogether, but when I read this phrase as we go through these verses today, this is of importance. This is of great value. As we've come to Christ, how we treat one another matters. And so with that, let's begin with verse 6. Or verse 1, excuse me. He says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. You guys ever heard this? <laughs> this is like the one verse non-believers know. All the time. I mean, you'll watch the news and there'll be like radical, evil people talking. And then they'll get up there like they're 
They're Bible scholars. Well, you know, the Bible says, thou shalt not judge lest thee be judged. And it's like, whoa. And even they're Christians. I mean, they're, they're us. Like, we know this verse. We'll, we'll come across situations where, where there's sort of a judgment call. We say, oh, the Bible says, thou shalt not judge lest thee be judged. So we're not supposed to to judge, we're supposed to kind of go through life like Switzerland. <laughs> we're just neutral. I, I, I'm not going to touch that. I'm just kind of living my own life. And so as we approach this, do not judge so that you will not be judged. This, this, is, this is a critical question. Is, is Jesus in his message to us telling us not to be discerning, not to make judgments, not to uh, sort of... Uh, Go through life examining right and wrong and, and, and dealing with issues. Well, well, I would suggest that the way it's often quoted and the way that even some of us uh, tend to understand it, that we're off. I, I don't think that the Bible is calling us to be Switzerland. I don't think the Bible is calling us not to exercise discernment and judgment and, and navigate. You just, you can't go through life without making any sort of judge. When you leave church today, you're going to be faced with a, a decision. You will have to make a judgment whether you're going to go left or you're going to go right. And if you don't make one of those two decisions, you're going to find yourself in an orange grove. <laughs> like you, we make decisions all the time. When I look at the whole of the scripture, one example from the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.17. Leviticus is often so far in the Sermon on the Mount has been a point that Jesus has been teaching. Leviticus 19.17 says this, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. And so just in sort of layman's terms, understand this practically, it says you're to love your neighbor. And so loving your neighbor means that if you see them in sin, if you see them doing something that's off, Love is sort of going to them and, and helping them work through it. Uh, Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. To, to be able to confront somebody is love. To ignore it is hate. We don't see our children going down a bad path and saying, you know, just let them go. No, no, parents love their kids. The only person who loves their children more than the parents is God. And so when a parent is confronting you and saying, don't do this, it's not because they're, they don't want you to have fun and they don't love joy. It's, it's because they see the direction and so they're coming and they're confronting in love. To the New Testament, as we continue through Matthew, I'm not going to go through every one of these passages. I just want to sort of highlight them. In Matthew chapter 18, there's this, the great passage. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, dealing with confronting sin amongst believers. Jesus says, if you have a brother that's in sin, you go to him one-on-one. -on -one. Make, make the judgment that they're in sin. You go to them, you talk to them. I, I do want to highlight before I move on, Christians know this one, and it's like, we think it's like, go to them. They don't respond right away. 15 minutes later, you show up with two or three. They don't respond after that. Five minutes later, you bring them before the church. I, I it doesn't say what the time element is, but it's sort of implied that there's an amount of time. If you've ever been confronted, and I've been confronted a lot, 
you tend to push back, and then it's like you let it kind of sit, and it might be a week, a month, and you're like, ah, oh, that person was right. I need to sort of like work through this. But so Jesus says himself, if you see a person sin, you, you confront them one-on-one. If after a certain amount of time, the person's continuing that sin, then you're to grab one or two other people and then go to the person and sort of present the issue to them. If that doesn't work, then you bring them before the church. And then Jesus says, if, if even after all of that, you're to basically get rid of the person. And, and then we have the verse, in the midst of all of this judging that Jesus gives us, the, the instruction to do in Matthew 18, it's the verse that's so often misquoted and misapplied. We use it towards prayer. Where two or three of you are gathered, I am there with you. That has nothing to do with prayer. That has everything to do with discipline. And Jesus is saying discipline and confronting a brother in Christ is a terribly hard thing to do. And if you go through this model and the person is wrong, I'm there with you to support you, to help you through this. Then you get into 1 Corinthians. There's all kind of issues. I mean, this is the Jerry Springer of the New Testament. And in verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 9 through 13, Paul has already written them another letter. We don't have that today. And he says, I wrote to you in my previous letter not to associate with immoral people. So I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world. So clearly when he gave the first letter, he says, don't associate with immoral people. The, the Corinthians... In their mind, they sort of said, well, we're going to basically become monks and we're going to isolate ourselves from the world because we're not going to hang out with immoral people. But the problem is when you isolate yourself with that, you're still with yourself and there's still you have your own issues. He said, I didn't mean at all the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler not even eat with such a one for what do i have to do with judging outsiders do you not judge those who are within the church but those who are outside god judges remove the wicked man from among yourselves this is a pretty severe that's not a passage i like applying ever (laughs) but we see the new testament that there within the church there is very strict command about helping people. Now, if we were to follow that one out, by the time you come to 2 Corinthians, Paul says, whoa, 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 ease up, guys. You've so brought judgment on this person that you're going to basically run them away. They've repented. They've recanted. They've humbled themselves before God. Now you restore them, and that's always the aim of biblical sort of discipline or correction. Hebrews or Ephesians 5.15, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Every time I say that, I think, man, I really need to get up memorizing that, but I'm so bad at Bible memory. So I write it down. Ephesians 5.15 says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. So, so there's this huge command that, hey, as you live your life, it, it goes on to expand that there is evil out there. There's good. As you navigate your life, walk carefully. Examine everything. Judge things. Is this good? Is this pleasing to God or is it not? Hebrews 5.14 says, But solid food is for the mature because of practice 
Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern or judge good and evil. And then in the immediate context of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, do not judge that you will not be judged. And then he continues to say a bunch of stuff that requires judgment, discernment, wisdom in navigating situations. So clearly, what Jesus is saying here in the immediate context, in the surrounding of the whole script, it can't be as the non-believer who's on TV saying, you're, you're not, judge not, judge not. And in our politically correct world, we have, a, we have this sort of been beaten upon us that we have to be politically correct because we can't say that this is wrong or this is right because that's just, we don't do that in our culture. And a lot of times that's, that belief is reinforced by this passage. But I don't think Jesus is saying that. Now this word judge is the Greek word krino, which in the English can be translated. John MacArthur says it can, there's 15 to 20 different English words that can be used for this Word. It a, has a broad spectrum of use. I believe that the heart behind what Jesus is saying in this is saying stop being critical. Stop criticizing one another. If we were to go to Luke chapter 18, verse 9, there's a great parable that Jesus tells that sort of highlights the issue of what he is addressing here. It's, it's the parable. We, we know it. It's about, um, he's talking about the Pharisee who goes to the temple and he stands all alone. He's disassociated himself from everybody else because he's higher than everybody else. And it says that he prays to himself and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And he says a whole bunch of stuff. I give, I fast, I'm wonderful. Thank God I'm not like that guy over there. And that guy is a tax collector who everybody hates. But the tax collector is over there with his head down, beating his chest. He says he can't even look up because he's so mournful of of his actions. And Jesus basically says that, man, I tell you the truth, is justified before God. But in Luke chapter 18, 19, as Jesus begins to tell that parable, listen what he says, or what is recorded about this parable. It says that he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. The whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been dismantling man-made religion where they've taken God's revelation, they've structured it in a way that they can fulfill it, and then they ultimately become the judge over top. John MacArthur says this, um, dealing with this passage. He says, I mean, any time a person, a man or a woman, invents a system of morality, they then become the judge that sits on the throne of that system and determines whether anybody else qualifies or not, and that's exactly what happened in the Pharisee's case. And so they became oppressively judgmental of other people. They condemned and criticized. They were censorious. They were unmerciful and unforgiving, unkind, lacking grace in their constant carping criticism 
of everybody who did not come to their own standard. There was this, this issue of elevation. They had written the rules. They became judge. They were so critical of everybody else and beat everybody down. And so when Jesus says, do not judge that you will not be judged, he's dealing with this issue of uh, sort of religious pridefulness. The follower of Christ understands who they are, or they should understand who they are, how vile their sin is. There's great, or there should be great humility Tim Keller writes this in his book, uh, Ministries of Mercy. He says, when a Christian sees prostitutes, alcoholics, prisoners, drug addicts, unwed mothers, the homeless, refugees, he knows that he is looking in a mirror. Perhaps the Christian spent all of his life as a respectable middle-class person, no matter. He thinks spiritually, I was just like these people. Though physically and socially, I was never there as they are now. They are outcast." Spiritually speaking, I was an outcast. And and so the whole posture, I just can't help reading this and thinking back to the Beatitudes, which the Sermon Mount started with. Blessed are the uh, poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. This, those who are a part of the kingdom, those who know Christ, there's a humility. And I think that verse 1 here is sort of the guiding principle. Stop being critical. It doesn't mean that we're not called to help people, that if we see a brother or sister in sin, that out of love, we, we, it's painful. If you've ever had to confront somebody for their sin because you love them, it's not pleasant. It would be easier to not judge. It would be easier to ignore, to turn a blind eye to it. But true love says, no, I love you. And so I need need to challenge you on this. But I'm not challenging you from a demeaning or a a prideful way. I'm, I'm, I'm coming before you because I love you and I want God's best for you. So do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way... You judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So right in the immediate context, Jesus is saying, do not judge, lest you be not judged. But but when you judge, this is how you're to go about it. In my studying of this, I I came across a story. Um, In 2012, there was an article done by CBS by this deputy, Elton Simmons. He's a L.A. sheriff um, motorcycle cop. He does traffic. He's the guy with the radar gun that hides in the corners. <laughs> we all laugh because we don't like those guys. I'll be going five miles under the speed limit. I will see a motorcycle cop and I'll hit the brakes. Just because it's our, we see them and we cringe. So what's interesting about this guy, he's been a, he's been a, a traffic cop for over 20 years. He has documented 25,000 stops, thousands of tickets, and they constantly do reviews of personnel. And they they basically take every complaint that is made about an officer, they evaluate, they document it, they do this sort of thing. So uh, this officer, Elton Simmons, 
Back in like 2011, early 2012, his supervisor is going through his record. He sees 20 years, 25,000 stops, thousands of tickets. And as he's flipping through his, the, the file on the computer, I guess he wasn't flipping through it, but scrolling through it, 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 in all of that, they saw that there's not one complaint about this traffic cop. There were all sorts of commendations. And, and the CBS writes this, it was such a shocking story that CBS news crew was assigned to follow Simmons in an attempt to learn his secret. First, they noticed Simmons' pitch-perfect mix of authority and diplomacy without a trace of arrogance or self-righteousness. Of course, Simmons Still hands out plenty of tickets. They just don't come with the standard guilt trip. And so during this video, they have him like at a, one of those concrete picnic tables. And Simmons is there. And the cops, like the, the interviewers, ask him, like, what's your deal? And he's like, listen, I hate being talked down upon. And so I don't talk down to people. When I pull them over, I'm not up here. I'm down here with them. And then they show a video of him pulling over and people are like giving their excuses. He's like, he's like, I get it. I do, I do it all the time. I'm really, I'm, I'm really sorry. Like, I, I, I get it. And he writes in their ticket. And then they start interviewing like three different people that got tickets by him. They're all smiling and happy. And they're like, one guy, they're like, what, what's the deal? And he's like, I don't know, but you just can't get mad at him. Check out his smile. He like lights up a room. And this one lady's like, B-check, I can't believe it. I'm like, I got a ticket, and I'm as happy as could be. This is like how he gave the ticket. It's like he cares about me. And it's this like beautiful story. The, his, um, this is what they end with. Um, a pair, okay, wait, let's see. Okay, a driver got a ticket from Simmons and agreed. The driver said, you know what it is? It's a smile. How can you be mad at that guy? Apparently you can't, concluded CBS News team. Time after time, ticket after ticket, we saw Officer Simmons melt away a polar ice cap of preconceptions, and his boss claims there is a lesson in here for the hard-nosed cops everywhere. I would insert hard-nosed Christians everywhere. Two, two, I don't know, it was New Year's Eve, like two years ago, I think. We were doing the trek to Anna's grandpa's house. I had like five miles to go. My bladder was telling me I needed to get there quick. And so I'm blasting through the 58 in the minivan. Vroom, vroom, you know, vroom. And I come across one corner, and I see the CHP pulling over the other way. I mean, I see him facing the other way parked. And so as I went around the corner, he was in my blind spot, like so I couldn't see him anymore. And I just immediately pulled to the shoulder. And I was like, what are you doing? Are you going to go to the bathroom or something? I'm like... No, I'm about to get a ticket. <laughs> sure enough, CHP flipped around, pulls me over. And I knew I was guilty, like totally guilty. And as he's sitting there talking, I was trying to explain to him that I'm a chaplain and I serve with law enforcement. And what I was trying to explain is I see it all the time. I'm totally guilty. Give me the ticket. I'm not going to talk back. I'm not going to give you lip. I get it. Guilty as charged. But it was like I got like two words out of my mouth, and the guy's like, I think he was thinking I was trying to talk out of the ticket. 
And so then he would say something and he misinterpreted what I said. So then I was trying to like talk back a little bit more. And, and I knew that as I'm going back and forth with him, I'm telling myself, Gunner, shut up, shut up. You're digging a hole, just shut up. But I couldn't shut up. <laughs> Finally, I got calmed down enough and he let me go. He, he didn't give me the ticket, which is unheard of for CHP guys. They give their grandmothers tickets. Like, I'm just like, there's no way I'm getting out of this. And, and he said, just slow down. The bathroom's right there. You'll make it fine. And when you get pulled over by a cop, how do you guys pull away? <laughs> Ten and two. <laughs> Blinker on. <laughs> Check a bunch of times. Easily pull out, drive away, keep it on 10 and 2, go in the speed limit, maybe a mile an hour slower just to be safe. You don't get let off, warned by a police officer, and then basically peel out, do a donut out of there and take off with the window down, hand signals out the window, whatever, you know. When the ticket says, this is, when the officer says, this is the weight of the law, this is what you deserve, but I'm not going to give it to you, and you drive away, there's like great humility. And I found that for at least like two or three days or weeks, I drove with extreme, I'm like, that was my, thank you, Lord. It was a good reminder. I needed to keep it slow. And so my question is, is that God has paged your ticket for the debt that you owe. And how are you driving right now? How, how do you, the person who has received forgiveness from Christ, how do you treat other people? Jesus is calling us to drive 10 and 2, blinker on, great humility. Your debt has been relieved. You need to treat other people amongst them, like that officer said. Not above them. Your life might look different. You might not struggle with alcohol, sleeping around, doing drugs, whatever your sin was. And maybe your sin was pridefulness. After we've encountered Christ, Jesus is calling us to humility with how we deal with other people. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by the standard of measure, it will be measured by you. We need to be graceful, humble, there's all kind of like passages that, that deal with as you help people, as you are judging. I'm not going to read them for time's sake, but Romans 2, verses 1 through 4. Romans 1 is all about the, the Paul as he's writing his legal case for Christianity or following Jesus, not Christianity, about Jesus. He talks about the, the pagans, those without any sort of morality, how they're found guilty, they're condemned. And then you transition to chapter 2, and he points to the moralists, and he says, you who are judging. He even goes so far as you're judging correctly, and the wrath of God is going to come upon them. But you be careful. And, and the thing that he says that has always stood out to me is, it says, you take the kindness of God lightly. He says, it was the kindness of God that led you to repentance. And so there's that same issue of that as we judge, as we go to the world, as we share Jesus, God was kind and gentle with us. And that's how we're to be as we deal with other people. 
Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it says, essentially, you who are spiritual, you who are mature, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. I tell you, as a, as a pastor where I'm kind of in this position where I have to help people along in their journey, I can't tell you how many times like I just, I've like looked at Anna and I'm like, I wish I could just take these adults over my lap, get out the wooden spoon, give them a bunch of spankings and say, stop it. <laughs> You're destroying your life. <laughs> but I can't do that. I'm not instructed to do that. And so, I mean, on a side note, I mean, we're in the pastoral epistles, Paul tells young Timothy, as you're teaching the word, do it with great patience, great kindness, gentleness. And, and then to illustrate this, Jesus continues to tell this, this story. And I see this as a funny scene. Guy. We have to, Jesus was a great teacher. I, I believe he had an awesome sense of humor. And so they're on the Sermon on the Mount. They're on this hill overlooking the hills. Jesus is midway through. There's probably a person or two that has started to like fall asleep on him. So he's, and he says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? Like literally a, a piece of sawdust, which is painful. It's annoying. Do you get a piece of sawdust in your eye? Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? It's literally like, like the picture is a two by four. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye and behold the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log in your own eye and then you will see clearly and take the speck out of your brother's eye. I believe that during this scene, Jesus is teaching. And there's Rick Restivo. He's got a little thing of his eye and I feel like as he's teaching, there's a big old log and he says... How can you take the log out of your own eye and help your brother Rick? And I, I believe he's doing this to the people because it's hilarious. Hey, Rick, can I try? I mean, you're going in for surgery already. Like, can I help? Can we? <laughs> like, I know he's going to the shop. Just add one more thing. What happened to your eye? Well, my pastor took it out. Can you fix that on the way? But this is humorous. I always know in my study, I'm like, well, I want to see how they handle it. So, so a couple of days ago, I went to our Adventures in Odyssey devotional on Matthew. The kids always get excited. Dad, are we doing devos? No, 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 kid. I'm just, I'm studying right now. I'm preparing for Sunday. And like, you're using the Adventures in Odyssey, like, devotional through Matthew? I'm like, sometimes you got to keep it on the bottom level. <laughs> and so I opened the Adventures in Odyssey, and they're like, opening story for this section was a story of a, they set this scene at, the, at, a, at a, like a public swimming pool. And uh, this person runs and they jump in the pool. As soon as they hit the water, they begin sinking. And then they're, you know, flailing. They go to the bottom. They'd come up for a gasp of air. And while, the, while they're gasping for air, the lifeguard comes in and he says, what's going on? Like the person's drowning there on the deck. I don't know how to swim. <laughs> and they come up, gas for air. Well, that was a really unwise decision of what you just did. What were you thinking? Why would you jump into the pool not knowing how to swim? The person's drowning the whole time. Finally, the lifeguard says, well, I'll get you. 
the lifeguard jumps in. And guess what? The lifeguard doesn't know how to swim. <laughs> and so the lifeguard starts drowning. And the person's like, what are you, who are you to start judging me, being critical of my bad decision when you yourself don't even know how to swim and then you jump in to try to help me? It's a silly story, but it makes a huge point. And of course, I'm like reading this all the time and I'm going, Lord, how do I judge? I'm not judgmental. I like, I found the sweet spot. I'm good. (laughs) So then last night, I'm driving. And I, um, I'm in the truck, and I look down, and I see a guy at the sign. You know, he's sitting in his seat at the stop sign, kind of like. And he looks up, and he sees me kind of looking down at him. Do you know how I react when I see people on their cell phones when they're driving? Honk, honk. Get off your phone. Do you know how often I use my cell phone when I'm driving? All the time. All the time. I'll be, I'll text, I'll do Facebook while I'm at the stoplight. <laughs> and then last night I'm like, I am such a hypocrite. It ticks me off when other people do it, but I'm a way better driver than all of you guys. So like I know how, I can do it better. I'm not saying this is a good illustration. I'm like, maybe it's a good illustration, but it's not like I need to work on it. Like I, I, I've really tried to get better. I notice like now when I'm driving, I text Ben and he replies back. I'm like, Hey, are you driving? He's like, yeah, I'm driving. I'm like, okay, just text me when you get to wherever you're going. Cause I'm not going to like perpetuate this. It's so easy to come down on other people and to ignore the very sin in your own life. And I think that this is why James says, let not many of you become teachers, my brother, knowing that as such you'll become a stricter, you will receive a stricter judgment. And so when we're confronting somebody, that means that you have the knowledge of what God has revealed as you present them with God's truth, not your opinion, with God's truth. But as you do that, you're demonstrating that you know what God has said. And so therefore, you've just placed yourself at a, at, at, in, a, in a position to be judged even greater. And so this should be like bring great, great humility. I think some of the best teachers are the teachers who absolutely struggled through stuff. When I was in, I don't know what grade it was in, it was high school, and uh, I took geometry. And the teacher was horrible. Like, it was just, I didn't have a clue. What, like, what he was saying, what he was trying to express, to the point to where I wasn't exactly the rock and academian back in high school. I graduated with a 2.1, just enough to, you know, I stayed eligible for sports. And it literally, it was graduation day. We're doing the rehearsal for, the, like, the walking. And it was like, I was still awaiting that last final that would determine is there going to be a Hanson in this graduating class or not? And I got word I passed and I graduated. Um, things changed later in life. Um, but that teacher, like, so I, I was like, I need help. I don't understand what he's saying. And they're like, well, what's your criticism? Is he a bad teacher? I was like, well, he clearly knows math really well, but he's never, clearly he's never struggled with math. 
So he doesn't know how to teach it from the struggling position. And then they transferred me to this other teacher, and that other teacher, it just was so much easier because he was sort of teaching from this posture of someone who had wrestled through this. And I love that Hebrews tell us that we don't have a high priest that can't sympathize, but one who had been tempted in every way, yet without sin, and that's our high priest who comes to us to instruct us. And I think that this is the challenge here, because he doesn't say don't judge. He says, deal with the log in your own eye. You want to deal with this. Then once you get that two by four out of your head and you are walking with the Lord and you're good, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he follows up with, after you've dealt with your own issue, then you'll be in a better place to help the brother. It reminds me of Psalm 51, David's great sin, like Bathsheba, it's been said that he broke nine of the Ten Commandments. I think the only one he didn't break was the Sabbath. And Psalm 51 is this great psalm of repentance. And in between verses 10 and 15, we see David saying this, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then if you follow a few verses down, after this cleansing, or as he's petitioning God to cleanse him, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. I think there's a huge illustration here that as we're dealing with people, as we're sharing the gospel, as we're having to help people along in their spiritual walk, which sometimes will involve confronting sin, you're not doing it from the holier-than-thou attitude. You're doing it, I'm a sinner just like you. I've struggled. I still struggle. I want to help you. The heart changes everything. And then we come to this like difficult passage. Verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet. And turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. That's next week's passage. But I, I, I feel that there's a connection here. Okay, do not give what is holy. What is holy? They, for them, holy, this is you'd go and you make your sacrifice. You'd have your little lamb. You would slaughter it. A part of it would be consumed for the fire. Then the priest would get a portion of meat. And then you would get some that you'd be able to take home. This was not, not just meat. This is like sanctified meat. This is what Romans and, and other places where there's, I think Corinthians is dealing with what about meat that's been sacrificed to idol? The kosher Jew would, would only take holy sanctified meat. This was expensive meat. You, you, you wouldn't just take this meat and give it to the dogs. And don't think your dog, uh, uh, you know, I don't, whatever your name of your dog is. These are like, ravenous sort of dogs that would roam the, the garbage pits. Uh, nobody had dogs as, as pets during this day. It, the, the exception would probably be an extremely wealthy person. That, but, but dogs, these are like Mexico dogs. You don't touch, like we do a trip to Mexico. It's like, don't pet the dogs. And I'll see Americans all the time go down there and they see this little puppy in there. It's got stuff all over. They're like, oh, kiss, lick my face. It's like, don't do that. No, no, no. Don't touch the dogs. And then you come to the swine. And these aren't even like domesticated pigs. These are like wild boars. 
that are they're violent animals, and it's very dangerous if you encounter a, a, a pig out in the wild. And so Jesus says, don't give what is holy to the dogs and don't throw your pearl before the swine. And I, I'll be totally frank with you guys. This has been a, this has been a, what's Jesus saying here? It's like the whole Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, he wants us to think. He wants us to ponder. Uh, the Life Application Bible Commentary says this, contemptuous evil people cannot grasp the value of the gospel, so they scornfully cast it away. We should not stop giving God's word to unbelievers, but we should be wise and discerning so as not to bring scorn on God's message. And I think that the message of what Jesus is saying, as the judging, as the the helping people, we, we need great wisdom and discernment as we're sharing the gospel. We're always to share the gospel. But there's also a point, I think, where you share the gospel and you need to stop. You need to give a little bit. There's, there's, a, there's a place to withhold, not to dump the whole bread truck on the person. Um, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3, 1 through 3, as he's talking back to the people, he, he basically says to them, previously, I could not say all that I wanted to say to you because you were in your flesh. I had to keep milk before you. Your carnality limited my speech. I had to, to, to have discernment. And I think it's one of these things like Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 is one of the funniest verses in Proverbs because I struggle with, I normally flip-flop it because I, and there it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will also be like him. So you get a fool, you get somebody that's like talking back, the, the Proverbs says, just don't even, don't even respond, just stop, don't, don't, don't engage it. You know the old saying, if you wrestle with a pig, you're both going to get muddy, but the pig is having fun. But then if you continue, Solomon says, answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he will not be wise in his own eyes. See, that's the side that I really have more fun with. I like to like zing people and get back and Normally, it's I just need to keep my mouth shut and move on. So I think what Jesus is saying is we, we need wisdom. And I think that this is where the whole context of prayer, because the very next thing here, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find it. Knock and it will be open for you. I think that verse is so much like we see God as the genie. Just if we pray, then he has to give us what we ask for. Like he's our bellhop. But I think in the context, what he's saying is as you're going through with relationships, it's messy out there. And you're going to need a lot of help. And so the first place that we go as we go to the positive side of relationships is that we, we seek and ask God, and I'm, okay, I, it's late here, so we're going to end. I think the heart of this, uh, th- that saying that was attributed to John Bradford as he was in prison, I don't even know if it was really him. Nobody knows if it was really him. But John Bradford was in prison for his faith, and he could see out his window as prisoners were being Uh, executed for their sins or their crimes, I should say. And it's attributed to him that he said, there but by the grace of God go I. And so there's this great humility. And I think that when we examine ourselves with open eyes, that we are honest with who we are, when we take stock 
in ourselves and we realize it's not about us, it's about God, when we have that posture as we're entering into relationships, as we're trying to help people, so often it's so easy. You get walking with God a little bit, you start tucking in your shirt, combing your hair the right way, not swearing very much anymore, and you can start elevating your stuff and you start talking down to people. I think Jesus is getting at the critical heart. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget that the only where you are is by his grace. And so it's with that posture that you approach and help other people. And so, Father, we do thank you for your great grace that you've poured upon us. We thank you, Lord, um, that you loved us, that you love us, that your kindness has led us to repentance. Father, I thank you with how you um, chip away at us, how you work on us. I thank you, Lord, that through our conscience, through your word, you allow us to feel the gravity of our sin. I love it that you allow us to, to, to feel sick, that we can mourn our sinfulness. And it's from that position that you lift us up, that your grace is poured upon us, that you overwhelm us with your love. And so, Father, I pray that as we um, interact with other people, I pray that you would give us wisdom. Father, I pray that you would help us to be loving, that you, you would help us to be kind. Um, Father, that you would help us to take good stock in our own lives as we seek to help others. Lord, keep us humble. We love you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.